This presentation is from Design Research 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Uh, hi everyone. Um, wow, tough act to follow, right? Um, so before lunch, we were lucky enough to listen to Ash talk about some psychology, and it's actually a really nice lead into where I'm headed now. Um, over the next eight minutes or so, just make sure I can work it. Um, I'm going to talk through a couple of psychological phenomena and how they influence our behaviour, but also our beliefs and our emotions as well. Um, additionally, at the end, I'm going to have a chat about why I think behavioural economics is such an exciting time for our field in the design industry. Um, but today I want to start by talking about the first time that I was lucky enough to investigate our psychology and the way that it influences what we do in the real world. Now, growing up, I was an avid basketball player. I trained six, seven days a week, probably for two to three hours at a time. What was I thinking? <laughs> that being said, when I got to university, I was offered the opportunity to study the hot hand effect. So you can imagine I was pretty excited to study something that I was really familiar with from the basketball field. Even if you're not a sports person yourself, I can pretty much guarantee that at some point in some context, you've heard somebody say, quick, they're on fire, give them the ball. Or something like, well, this team's been winning lately, so they're probably likely to win again now. And it's these comments exactly that embody the hot hand effect. So the hot hand effect is the idea that the probability of success is higher following a success than a failure for any athletic skilled performance. In fact, for any discrete skilled performance. Now, in the real world, on the courts, I grew up being directed to feed the ball to the star team player who had a hot hand pretty much every game, much to my disgust. <laughs> <laughs> and coaches and players alike would often boast openly about our confidence, having won the last three games to make it to the grand final. So, of course, we're going to win tonight. On the other hand, guilty, I did have a bit of an attitude problem if I missed some shots in warm-up. Because we all know that if you miss the easy jumper, then you've probably lost your touch. Now, the problem with this effect is that since 1985, when the hot hand was first investigated, researchers in countless fields, including volleyball, baseball, hockey, tennis, racquetball, the list goes on, they've all failed to reach conclusive evidence that hot hand performance in athletes actually exists. Yet, for some reason, there is consensus that we all have this really strong belief that there is such a thing as streaky performance. We've got explanations for the discrepancy in observer belief but player behaviour that range from things like faulty perception mechanisms that misattribute chance patterns in behaviour to athlete skill, or a memory bias, as Ash mentioned earlier, that causes us to pay particular attention to our favourite athlete's successful performance and thus remember the successes more easily. And the project that I worked on investigated one theory that as the player in question, when I hit a successful shot, I'm more likely to take a harder shot the second time around, which means rather than seeing an increase in accuracy, you'll see an increase in difficulty instead. The question is, why am I talking about this today? The reason I discuss the hot hand is that one way or another, whether the athletic performance actually exists or not, our brains perceive there to be a relationship between one shot and the next, and as a result, our behaviour changes. So I'm more likely to bet money on my beloved Michael Jordan's second free throw if he makes the first. You're more likely to bet for the grand final underdog because they did win three games to get here and the favourites only won the last one. 
And truth be told, we're probably all just that little bit more likely to pass off an interview to one of our colleagues who seems to be having a really great time at the moment. As designers and researchers, it's really important for us to both identify and try and understand what's actually going on behind the scenes psychologically that's prompting the behaviours that we're trying to design for and around. Now, I don't think that anyone would argue with me when I say that trust was a really important component of the team dynamic on the basketball court. Let's be real. If we actually consider any interpersonal relationship and definitely our purchasing behaviours, trust is a pretty logical prerequisite for success. I'm probably not going to buy my house from an insurance company I don't trust. I don't confide in you if I don't trust you. And minus the $2 iPad case I bought from eBay the other day, which is a whole other story, I'm probably not going to shop in your online store if I don't trust you. Researchers have shown that trust plays just as an important role in our user experience as does usability and perceived ease of use. So the next question is, as designers and researchers, what are we doing to try and understand how trust is actually formed and maintained in digital experiences? And this is where I get excited. And also take heed of my notes. <laughs> So social identity theory offers one potential explanation about why we tend to trust some people more readily than others. According to this theory, my own sense of self is based on and built upon the characteristics of the groups that I choose to belong to. In some cases, this leads to an in-group bias in which I begin to favour those who have similar characteristics to myself over those who don't. This then, naturally, leads to increased trust. And as a really simple example from today's context, if I identify myself as a design researcher, which I do, and somebody introduces me to both a design researcher and a data analyst, and I apologise if there are data analysts in the room in advance, I'll, I will chat later, definitely. <coughs> Chances are I'm probably naturally going to prefer to chat with the researcher to start with. And the reason being is not only do I view myself as a researcher, I probably view myself as a trustworthy person as well. So by the very nature of who you are as a researcher, you're probably more uh, the safer bet for somebody who's also trustworthy. Otherwise, you actually start to threaten my sense of self. If we layer social identity theory with social presence theory, which looks at how salient the human experience is, the human presence is within a communication or experience, researchers have shown that introducing pictures of people into websites increases the social presence. Yeah, yeah, right, Ash, I know. But as a result, it also increases our trust in the online platform that we're using and the underlying business behind it. At a high level, if there seems to be a human presence in a digital system, I'm going to engage just that little bit easier with the platform. Likewise, if I can actually identify with that human element that this person is similar to me, I'm going to trust you just a little bit more again. The point here is that with advances in technology, all of a sudden, the human that I once visited to submit my health insurance claim is now an app that sits in my pocket. The friendly voice on the other end of the helpline that used to answer my questions has become a chatbot that answers in a stilted manner, although granted that is improving. And rather than visiting a retail store to actually physically look at, compare and judge the options of products that I'm trying to decide between, I can literally jump online and have millions of different options from all around the world within a matter of seconds. Are we losing a vital human connection? As researchers and designers, it's important for us to keep 
considering how the systems that we design and the experiences that we're researching are actually changing the in traditional interpersonal interactions that exist between humans and thus keep an eye on the psychological and behavioural consequences of what we're creating. Now, at the moment, I work almost exclusively within the digital team at NIB Health Funds, and we've worked pretty hard over the last eight to ten years, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> um, with our stakeholders to actually get them on board with the whys and hows of our qualitative research practices. Um, in the past, they've, they've shied away quite substantially from considering psychology and behavioural science, but I have a feeling that it's potentially due to the fact that it seems like a bit of a clandestine topic. Now, as Ash mentioned earlier, for design research but also behavioural economics, they're such a sexy topic lately, and our stakeholders are finally becoming more open to actually considering and discussing how user and customer psychology is influencing the, the behaviours of our customers. The best part? Books like Nudge, the election campaign team behind Barack Obama's successful re-election, and the original Nudge unit themselves, the behavioural insights team that started within the UK government have actually shone a spotlight on the psychological phenomenon in such an easily, easily accessible manner that we can now have these conversations with stakeholders and business partners alike without watching their eyes glaze over, and it's exciting. Um, it's may, been mentioned numerous times today that most of us in the room know our behaviour isn't purely rational. We don't weigh up pros and cons and make a decision based on the outcome. Truth be told, a lot of us probably wouldn't have a job if that was the case. Um, but the shared language of behavioural economics allows us to bridge the gap between qualitative and quantitative research and actually explain what's going on, but also come up with theories about how we think we can change and influence or design for behaviour. Only earlier this year, researchers have discovered that monitoring the on-screen mouse movements of a user can help us not only detect the presence of, but also the magnitude of negative emotions that we're creating for our users. Is that not the most exciting thing we've heard yet? It honestly means that... Um, <coughs> sorry, the last thing that I want to challenge you with is, as designers and researchers, the next time you're working on a problem or the next time you're asked a question about solving something for a user, have a consideration of what's actually going on behind the scenes. Are there beliefs that are driving the patterns in your behavioural data that you're seeing? And is there a way that you can design either for or against that belief that will change the behaviour? Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.